I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Last month, I meant to give a talk on right view and right resolve. And only after the fact did I realize I mostly gave a talk on right view and didn't even really touch on right resolve. So I uh, resolve to talk on resolve today. And I want to start it by uh, touching on something that came up a few weeks ago, this, this question that was uh, posed that I think warrants exploration. And this question that was posed was, do we need to experience something first before we can renounce it? You know? This kind of question, I think, is important because we tend to think of life as being very contained, especially here in the West, but this view is growing. That we have this one life and just this short amount of time to just get the most out of life we can possibly get. And we tend to think of that in terms of experiences. We tend to think that what we're here to do is just get the most out of every moment, squeeze all the juice out of every experience, and rack up those experiences to have as much fun, as much adventure, as much anything. Even happiness and sadness, all of it is good. All of it is something we're trying to live maximally until, until we die. And so there can be this tendency to think that the spiritual stuff can be put off till later. We have our fun first while we're young, we make mistakes, we learn, we have experiences, and then it's only in our golden years at the end that we start to get spiritual. And even if this is not something that we explicitly know as a culture, it's certainly something that we implicitly live. All you need to do to see it is to go to, in my experience from what I've seen, go to any Catholic or Christian church. And you will see that predominantly the congregation is made up of people 55 plus, like it's some retirement camp on Sundays, right? And it's because a lot of the younger people are too busy living to do any of the spiritual work. So there is this tendency to look at life as this very contained thing. And it's all about experiences. But the Buddha didn't look at it that way, this life that we have. For starters, he viewed life as something that, that spanned multiple lifetimes. But not only that, but even within this one lifetime, when we really pay attention to it, when we really look around, he valued those that from a young age got the idea that like, no, 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 no. A lot of these things I should start looking at now and to look at the experiences of others. But I'll circle back to the idea of multiple lifetimes because it's something that I don't hear a lot as a Western Buddhist. It's one of those things that I find while reading the suttas, while reading the Pali Canon, 
again and again and again as a reference, as something to hold as important, as a view that the Buddha had as part of the foundations before even getting into the, the noble parts of the path. This idea of two things, of rebirth and karma. And there are those two things that are often not discussed until much later. We start off with other things in the West. We start off with meditation. And you do meditation and, oh, doesn't it feel good? Don't you feel relaxed? You're following the breath and everything. We start off with the, the pleasant side effects of meditation. It can lower your blood pressure, make you a little happier. You'll do these things. And then maybe, maybe we'll get around to the precepts. Like, maybe it's good while you meditate. Maybe don't, you know, be telling lies or take things that don't belong to you or getting involved in illicit relationships and so on. But this other part, we, we leave out entirely, almost, looking at things in terms of this one life. And if you look at this journey you're on as only this one life, as many of us do, you end up having this feeling of this ticking clock in terms of experience. There's a reason why so many people on social media that are around my age are panicking that they're quickly approaching, if not directly in, middle age. Because they're all a generation of people that lived on the internet. So while other people have the past as being this kind of amorphous thing that exists in the back of their mind, like, don't you remember what high school was like? Man, we got, we got the videos. We got, we got the MySpace. We got the Facebook. We have a lot of evidence of the silliness we were involved in, college and whatnot. We've been chronicling our lives so much on social media that it feels like it happened just yesterday. You see it all the time. People posting online and they're like, wow, it's so weird that I'm celebrating my 40th birthday because it doesn't make any sense. I'm actually 25, you know? Or it's weird that my son just turned 21. I'm only 26. And these people are making jokes, but there's an actual panic there about the fact that they're aging, about the fact that they're getting older, about the fact they're approaching middle age. And then for older people, say more of the Gen X area, they're getting in their 50s and 60s, kind of same, and kind of the same across the board. Everyone's kind of panicking that they're getting older. And in light of that, there's this desire to have more experiences, more adventures. People are afraid of missing out. We come up with acronyms like FOMO, the fear of missing out. There's all these things that we're trying to do, trying to catch on to, trying to consume in a sort of frenzied and panicked way. And even those who are more of the spiritual bent, those that do find the value and going off to temples, going off to retreats, there even is that sense of like, no, but I need to experience all of it. I can't be left out. I can't leave things behind. I can't go without. And so you have this sort of spiritual tourism that begins, this desire to go out and go out and go out and go out. I think it's helpful to have the perspective of multiple births in mind because it really does curb that tendency to seek out experiences in that panicked way. Because the Buddha, in looking at multiple lifetimes, doesn't say that like, well, you've got to experience it all and wasn't it all worthwhile? Didn't, make it, didn't it make you super happy and fulfilled? You've lived as a king, you've lived as a god, you've lived as a princess, you've been the potter, the shoemaker, you've been this thing and that thing, you've had that, you've missed out on this, you've done this, without any inconceivable, like, without conceivable beginning, without a beginning that even makes any sense. You've been going in this wandering on, you've accumulated so many experiences. Aren't you fulfilled? 
No, he has precisely the different message. In the uh, Asu Sutta, the Tears Sutta out of the Sunyuta Nikaya, the Buddha begins by addressing his monks and he goes, Hey monks, what do you think is greater? All the tears that you've shared over multiple rebirths or all the water in the four great oceans? And when you think about how much water exists in the oceans, probably more than four great at this point, yeah, that's a lot of water, right? Our planet is mostly water. And so someone might go like, well, that's a lot of water. But the monks go, well, no, it, it seems more likely that the tears that we've shed over multiple rebirths, that would be far greater than all of the water in the great oceans. And the Buddha says, yes. And he goes on, remember, this is someone who, on the night of his own awakening, his own unbinding, was able to not only see that rebirth was something that all of us experience, that karma and consequence is something that we all experience, but he saw his own lifetimes, past, 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 past. And he got to see it all. And if you ever read the suttas where the Buddha does discuss his past lives, he doesn't talk about how fun or cool or what crazy adventures he went on. Sometimes he shares specific stories because there's good lessons. But in talking about it himself, he's more like, well, I was this kind of guy. I lived in this sort of town. I ate that kind of food. I did that sort of stuff. And then I died. And then I was this guy. And I ate that kind of food. And then I died. And then he just goes on and on. You get to feel the kind of monotonous tone of it. But when addressing the monks, he goes much further than that. And so I'll share some of that with you now. Because the language, I think, really strikes at this feeling that we're developing in terms of experiences and trying to acquire and collect them. Long have you repeatedly experienced the death of a mother, the tears you have shed over the death of a mother while transmigrating and wandering this long, long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing, being separated from what is pleasing, are greater than the water in the four great oceans. Long have you repeatedly experienced the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son, the death of a daughter, loss with regard to relatives, loss with regard to wealth, loss with regard to disease. The tears you have shed over loss with regard to disease while transmigrating and wandering this long, long time, crying and weeping, from being joined with what is displeasing, being separated from what is pleasing, are greater than the water and the four great oceans. Why is that? From an inconceivable beginning comes transmigration. A beginning point is not evident. Though beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. Long have you thus experienced stress, experienced pain, experienced loss, swelling the cemeteries, enough to become disenchanted with all fabricated things, enough to become dispassionate, enough to be released. So there are a few things there worth acknowledging, worth pointing out. I would say that the fact that when the Buddha talks about these lives that we've lived, they are there's no inconceivable beginning. And also that this 
even exists because we are hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. So think about the, the kind of mentality we have about life. Because we don't remember our previous lifetimes, because we don't know what we've already had and what we've already lost, we tend to think that we just have this one life to accumulate as much as possible, to do as much as possible, to grasp and cling to as much as possible. And part of that is that ignorance that he acknowledges, and part of that is that craving. So to go back to that initial question, do we need to experience a thing before renouncing it? No, not in this lifetime. Because if we take on rebirth as what we might call a, a provisional belief, maybe at first it's not a belief that we, we take on easily. Perhaps it's a belief that we struggle with. Perhaps it's a belief that we greatly doubt even. We can take it on provisionally as a perception, something to help with this idea of renunciation, help with this idea of disenchantment. Because there are plenty of lifetimes where you've experienced this thing and that thing, had more, had less. And the problem is not those experiences. The problem is the quality of mind, ignorance, and craving. I'll point to an example. My cat is not a very smart cat, but a pretty typical cat. And this cat does not know the taste of filet mignon, does not know the taste of chocolate chip ice cream, does not know the taste of albondigas, right? Plenty of foods that she's never had. But what she has had is for the most, for majority of her life, um, a serving of dry food in the morning and a serving of wet food in the evening. And without experiencing all of those things, every single day, without fail, her mind is resolute. Her mind is on one thing, food. When am I gonna eat? When am I gonna eat? When am I gonna eat? And you better believe, first thing in the morning, when either my wife or I go to the food bowl and put that scoop of dry food, the way she runs after it, the way she bounds after it, the way she meows, the satisfied smack as she gets into the crunch of it, and then the wet food, my goodness, even more excitement, right? Something that to you and me smells awful. The smell of cat food, we all know it. It smells disgusting, it smells not like food, but to her, best thing ever. And even though nothing about it changes, the food itself remains the same every day. She craves after it, obsesses over it, thinks about it, will literally claw your face for it. And it's this thing that it's the same every single day. Now the thing is, we tend to think that, well, yeah, that's the cat, right? We're different. We get to eat different things for breakfast, different things for lunch, different things for dinner. We get to go to cafes. We get to go to Six Flags. We get to go to Disneyland. We get to go on roller coasters. We get to do so many things. And the Buddha would say that, yeah, but in comparison to unbinding, in comparison to Nibbana, it's the same as that cat food. 
and we're just as excited for it. That's, that's the truth of it <laughs> in comparison to Nibbana and compared to, compared to un, uh, unbinding. We're like that cat chasing after that wet food, that stinky, gross food, and going, oh, this is the best ever. Been thinking about this all day. That's the quality that we have to our lives when we think we've got this one life and we get excited for every little thing that we're going after. So what I'm discussing here is essentially uh, what I've been discussing for the last few months, what even Silas has been discussing for the last few months, which is really getting at the heart of right view, which ends up leading into right resolve. The Buddha, when he was doing his own training, his own cultivating of his mind, came to this idea himself. He told himself, all right, I'm going to look at my thoughts. I'm going to look at what I'm intending with my mind, what I'm doing with purpose, and I'm going to separate them into two groups. And in the West, when we discuss it, we tend to talk about what he viewed as skillful and what he viewed as unskillful. And in the skillful group, he wanted certain qualities. and the unskillful group, he wanted other qualities. In the unskillful group, he noticed that what he considered unskillful were those thoughts that were in, intending and directing toward uh, sensuality. And those thoughts that were trending toward thoughts that were about ill will and those thoughts that were dealing in uh, harmfulness. And that meant that conversely in the skillful group, he saw those thoughts, those intentions, those resolves as skillful, those ones that were about renunciation, that were about non-ill will, that were about harmlessness. And that is then what he decided to do with his meditation at first. Seeing the unskillful, seeing the the thoughts of sensuality, the thoughts of ill will, the thoughts of harmfulness, and to see them for what they were and to abandon them, let them go. Apply those intentions of letting go to those thoughts. And then on the other side to what was skillful, seeing the renunciation, seeing the non-ill will, seeing the harmlessness, and cultivating those more. And he thought to himself as he was cultivating this, I see no harm in what I'm doing. I'm developing... Uh, renunciation and I see no harm in this. When I develop this, it doesn't cause any harm to myself, it doesn't cause any harm to others, it doesn't cause harm to myself or others. And he did the same thing with non-ill will and he did the same thing with harmlessness. The only negative, the only downside that he saw to developing those good qualities, those good types of thoughts, those good intentions, those good resolves, is that spending your time thinking about those things all the time ends up being a little tiring. And, that, and so he decided that, well, I'll develop these thoughts, but I'm also going to develop concentration. Times when I set those thoughts aside to not think at all, develop really deep samadhi and set them aside. Which means that we have these good qualities that we build on to help get into concentration. And in concentration, we give up and abandon all of those thoughts entirely. But we are developing these thoughts, and they are more than thoughts, more than just lofty ideas. Right? The, the Pali term for what ends up being translated sometimes as right thought or right resolve is sankappa. And sankappa has other qualities behind the term. It can also mean intention. It can also mean purpose. And I think that purpose in this light, or this conversation we're having, becomes really important because within what we're talking about is living and thinking with purpose, with intentionality. What we're really getting at, at the heart of this, is a purposeful life. 
and purpose to in what regard, right? To the blameless, to the deathless, to be free of the, the kind of harm that we can cause ourselves in our run-of-the-mill day-to-day lives. We're doing something to provide safety to ourselves and safety to others. So in light of that, when we look at these three qualities, we can see how renunciation itself is also really about those other two things. Non-ill will and harmlessness are not just about how we relate to others. They're also about how we relate to ourselves. Renunciation isn't just good for the world, it's good for you. Non-ill will and harmlessness remind me of a couple ideas I came across when I was uh, studying to be a therapist. I ended up not completing my, my study, but I did find a lot of value in, uh, in what I learned in regard to ethical conduct for psychotherapists. There were two things that I have taken away as not just ideals for a skillful therapist, but ideals for a skillful Buddhist following the path. And one of the things we're already familiar with because it's one of those things that doctors always uphold, which is like to do no harm. We've probably heard this on a lot of TV shows. If you watched ER and it's what, 20 seasons or something, you know? Or if you watched any other kind of like show like that, there's always that like, I'm, we do no harm here in this hospital or something like that, you know, whatever. But there is this idea to do no harm, right? And the, uh, the term uh, ethically for it is uh, non-maleficence, which I think is a fun word to say. <laughs> but there is that quality, right? Non-maleficence, to, to do no harm. But then there's more than that, a directive to do more than that, which is then beneficence, to not just not do any harm, but to also do good. And that's one of the things that I think that as Buddhists we're also cultivating. So to look at it in that way, when we talk about non-ill will and harmlessness, we're talking about non-maleficence and beneficence. To take them to the Brahma Viharas, when we're talking about non-ill will, we're talking about goodwill. We're talking about the kind of metta that we were developing at the, uh, at the beginning of this, of this service. As we were developing our, our meditation on metta, we were working on non-ill will. We were working on goodwill. The, uh, the other quality, uh, harmlessness, I think relates very strongly to compassion, right? Compassion in many ways ends up being metta put into practice. So harmlessness is our goodwill put into action. And so we see in all three a particular way of being, relating to the world and relating to ourselves and relating to each other in terms of renunciation, in terms of non-ill will, in terms of harmlessness. Right? Those are the resolves that we have. Those are the, that's the purpose we give ourselves in developing the path. All right. So uh, I have now, I think, satisfactorily, at least to myself, covered a right resolve, which I forgot to do last month. So I'll end my talk there, and if there are any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Thank you.